There's a whole world bursting with life beneath our feet. And no, I'm not talking about the mole people or the lizard people that some people think may be controlling the world right now. I'm talking about organisms living directly in the soil. Worms, ants, bacteria, fungi, algae, countless other species that all work together as a community, breaking down organic matter above ground and converting it into carbon that is the stuff of life when it comes to agriculture. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Routes to Climate Solutions, we're looking at soil biology and how it affects soil carbon sequestration. We're going to be listening to Dr. Jeff Battagalli's presentation on soil biology at the Organic Alberta Conference 2018. So it took place last year. Uh, Dr. Battagalli is a soil scientist working at the University of Alberta. Kimberly Cornish, who is the founder and executive director of Food Water Wellness Foundation, was the one that found Dr. Battagalli for us over a year ago. Now, Kimberly also knows way more about soil carbon sequestration than I do, so I've asked her to help me co-host today. Also, her organization is going to be working with us, Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, to just do a lot of soil carbon sequestration work this year. I like to call our project the School of Soil Carbon, but Kim, have we agreed to that name? Can we I- just go with it? If it would make you happy, Derek. <laughs> I'm picturing like a school of rock kind of thing to go with it. It just it makes the soil science so much cooler. Yes. <laughs> so uh, the, the idea with this coming year, uh, Rural Roots and Food, Food Water Wellness Foundation, we're just going to be rolling out a lot of educational content. So we're talking workshops, field days, articles, podcasts, webinars, videos. I don't know if there's anything else we can throw in there too. Kind of the gist of it, but the, the idea is just to give people an idea how soil carbon sequestration works and how producers can facilitate the process. Because I would argue that soil carbon sequestration is probably the most powerful to- tool producers have in their kit to boost soil health and help tackle climate change. So I'm super excited about the collaboration. Uh, before we get into Batagelli's presentation, I'm just wondering, Kim, is there anything new with Food Water Wellness Foundation that folks at home should know about? Well, we were very fortunate to get uh, the Community Environmental Action Grants. So we'll be delivering 14 one-day workshops in partnership with Rural Routes on soil carbon sequestration with Dr. Christine Nichols. And we will also be baselining uh, eight different farms throughout the province and being able to measure and map their soil carbon. Very cool. Uh, Do you already have the eight farms selected? Um, we're in the final process of doing that. We're just um, making sure that we're getting uh, an accurate representation of all the soil types and also the rainfall gradients throughout the province. All right. Okay. Well, really give us a great picture. Um, with Okay. Actually, before we get into the presentation, we probably should just like establish some things that you need to know to understand this presentation because... It, it's not the easiest presentation to understand. Like, Bettigelli's a really smart guy, and I've I've listened to it two or three times already, and I'm like, I don't quite get all of this. I don't know if it's the same with you. It's, it's very – Jeff's a very incredible academic, mm-hmm. and that is fantastic. But sometimes there's a couple moments where there's words that just seem totally – to be self-explanatory when you are used to an academic context that for some of us that don't have all of that educational background, it's not exactly the, as easy as it sounds. Exactly. So. And it's, like, it's not a comment on him as a presenter at all. It's just, it is really complex stuff. And to maybe dumb it down is not the right way to put it, but just to like, make it very simple for somebody like me who's 
like got a history degree, you know, it's probably not that easy to do <laughs> to begin with. Uh, but yeah, just so some baseline stuff or some stuff that you need to know. So first of all, Kim, could you explain the difference between the stable carbon pool in the soil and the labile carbon pool in the soil? So the stable carbon pool is obviously stable. It doesn't turn over, whereas the labile carbon pool is is the interaction. It's what a lot of the time is referred to as the carbon cycle. And so when you've got um, photosynthesis bringing uh, carbon into the soil through both the liquid carbon pathway and also through decomposition of plant material, and then that carbon is eaten by microbes and then respired. Uh, some of it is respired back out to into the atmosphere. And so that's what they talk about when they talk about the labile carbon pool. Mm-hmm. And the so the stable pool, this is how what keeps it stable or how is it not cycle back up? It's it's more stubborn. It's more recalcitrant. It's harder to break down. Okay. So there's it's. Yeah, there's just different types of carbon that are more tasty to the microbes, Mm -hmm. basically. And so um, if it's not so tasty, it seems to stay there longer. And if it's tastier, it gets eaten and used. And then some portion of it gets respired out. We're in a dynamic place with soil, with our understanding of soil science and soil microbes um, and how the how soil carbon sequestration really works. And and so it's a, there's kind of, I find a lot of the time there's a bit of a jockeying back and forth between different understandings of, of how the carbon cycle works and, and what we can do and we can't do to affect it and, and what the long-term potential is for carbon storage from the atmosphere in soil. But right. I always go back to when traditionally prairie soils were around 10% soil organic matter. And a lot of the soils now are sitting like between one and 2% because they've been, you know, because of like years and years of tillage and a whole bunch of other aspects. Um, So when I look at, yes, there isn't an infinite ability to store atmospheric carbon in the soil, but if they used to be 10%, there's, a lot of room that could be there to store that extra 8% that we're not using. And that CO2 is probably in the atmosphere instead of in the soil. Mm, definitely. Okay. So when we, when we're talking about the carbon sequestration that helps fight something like climate change, we're really more talking about that stable pool. But then when we're talking more about soil health or soil organic carbon, it's more the labile pool. Is, is that fair? Can you differentiate like that? I, I don't think because the labile pool is the one that you can affect much more easily. So okay. I think when you're talking about changing management and increasing soil organic matter, that you are talking about the labile pool. But I think it's that, you know, if you think about it going around in cycles that you're, you know, if you're um, – the carbon's coming down into the system and some of it's being released out, but maybe not all of it is being released out if there's practices that are are increasing the 
the stability of it. And and I think what we're what we're starting to see is there was a study that came out from the University of New Hampshire in I think 2016 where they could actually grow soil organic matter in a petri dish from sugar, which meant that it was it wasn't just the breakdown of plant material, it was actually the bodies of the microbes themselves that were creating that soil organic matter. And so the more microbes and the more microbial biomass, if you want to get more technical about it, the more soil organic matter there actually will be. And as as you have more of them, they also, and more diversity, then you get these like different biological glues that make certain parts of that carbon not as tasty for the microbes. And that makes it more stable. Mm. St- stable, not stable. This <laughs> <laughs> is thinking like God, the, the whole soil biology thing's complicated enough. And now they're like growing soil organic matter in petri dishes. It just. The second you think you get your head around it, then they do something different. Like, I, I don't get it again. But uh, I just really quickly, too, before we move into the presentation, just a quick difference between, okay, we have soil organic matter and soil organic carbon. How, how do you differentiate between the two? Um, soil organic carbon is about 58% of soil organic matter. And so it's a portion of that, of what we've been using to discuss soil organic soil organic matter and the, i think the reason that a lot of the time it gets thrown around is because that's what farmers have traditionally been using to monitor because it's a percentage of their soil and it's easier to understand whereas when you're dealing with total carbon in the soil it's a, a number and you don't know what that means in relationship to the rest of the stuff in the soil We have to understand that everything above ground is related to everything that's going on below ground. If we don't have healthy soil, we don't have healthy ecosystems growing above ground, and we as human beings require that in order to survive. So those things are very, very tightly tied together, and we need to support those three things going forward. So we look at the soil. In our lifetime, soil is generally considered a non-renewable resource. It takes a long time for it to form about uh, one to two centimeters and about 400 years to develop a good soil horizon there. Um, It's really important for terrestrial productivity though. If you don't have a good healthy soil, you're not gonna have things growing above ground. But the soil itself is more than just organic matter, uh, mineral material, and water and air spaces. So we look at soil formation, we're looking at five main factors that influence soil formation. The parent material, time, climate, organisms, and the topography. Those things influence how soil develops. There's a bunch of different processes that are involved within soil as well. We've got transformation of material and minerals in that system. We've got translocation. We've got materials moving up the soil profile, things washing down the soil profile. We've got material that's added to the top soil, added to the parent material, causing soils to change. And we've got loss of material. We've got water that pushes minerals through, pushes clays through, changing the different soil profiles or soil horizons. So when we're looking at the soil itself, we're considering these three different groups of properties. We're looking at biological properties, chemical properties, and physical properties. 
We tend to do really well with the physical and chemical properties. It's very easy to go out and measure bulk density. Nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, we can send that to the lab, get it done. We can look at um, the stability of the soil. The one thing that we tend to neglect because it seems to function is the biology. So I'm going to focus more on that this morning. But we do have to consider the other two components as well because the three of those things together have the soil functioning in a proper healthy fashion for us. So we want to define a term. We're going to start defining a few terms. We're going to look at soil health. And this is a very large, broad term that somebody's come up with, and it covers a lot of territory. So we're looking at the ability of a soil to function as a vital living system, to sustain biological productivity, promote air and water quality, and maintain plant and animal and human health. That's huge. That leaves us wide open for total failure and makes it almost nonsensical as trying to prove something like that. But we persevere anyways, and we try to look at soil health as that system functioning below ground in a way to provide services for us. So when we're talking about a soil, a healthy soil, what is a healthy soil? Is that a healthy soil? If you're trying to, if you're trying to grow a cactus, that's awesome. If you want to grow strawberries, you're going to be challenged to do that. So you need to consider what you want your soil to do. Most of the ecosystems, the soils are going to function and provide the services needed for that ecosystem. From a farming perspective, we have to understand what it is we want to do with the soil, and we have to see if the soil can provide those services for us to perform. So we have to figure out ways to help the soil work in a manner that we can get the results that we want to get. So we need to look at different things to measure and different way to assess those things. Potentially, we're looking at a variety of different properties. Some of these properties are very dynamic, short-term things that change over time. So things like the biology below ground, very, very quick to change. Some organisms live from two to three days, some of them from two to three months, some of them for a couple of years. Very different from something like parent material or the topography of your farming area. That's really not going to change over two months, five months, five years, 50 years. That's pretty stable. So that's something that once you know what it is, it's really not something you want to monitor in the long term. We have to establish some sort of criteria. We have to figure out what we want to look at, and we have to establish that baseline information to monitor over time any changes in those soil ecosystems. So we want to look at assessing different chemical or physical properties over time and make sure that we're looking on a proper time scale to monitor those things. We have to establish baseline values. What's a good value for nitrogen or for phosphorus? What's a good bulk density to have in your soil? Those things we need to identify and establish and monitor those over time to see if their things are changing over time, if we're influencing them with the practices that we're performing on the land itself. And at the end of the day, we're not looking at single properties individually. We're not just assessing bulk density. We're not just assessing the nitrogen or the phosphorus content. We're not just looking at the microbial population. We're looking at all of this data together, and we need to integrate it in some fashion that will provide us a way of measuring and assessing the soil function or soil health. I kind of think of soil as a watch. So we're looking at it, and we want to know the time. And as scientists, we've turned it over, we've looked at the back, and we said, oh, look, look at all the gears. This is amazing. And as scientists, we've pulled it all apart, 
and we started looking at all the screws and all the gears and the springs, and we've taken them off on our little side, little side adventures and put them in little boxes, and we've studied them like crazy, and we realized that that gear, that's so important. And what's happened is we've kind of forgotten how to put the watch back together. <laughs> and at this point, the one thing I think we're missing overall is we got to find a watchmaker again. We need to find some way to put that watch back together because right now, ladies and gentlemen, it's correct twice a day. And the rest of the time, it's a little off. So that's something we need to start looking towards. How do we start bringing together all of these different pieces of data that we are collecting over time and integrating it into making a complete and functional watch again? So some of the things we're going to look at we look at physical properties. We're looking at things that we typically measure very easily these days. We're looking at bulk density. We're looking at soil texture. We look at erosion potential, the hydrology, the topography, aggregate stability. These things are very, very easy for us to measure. And we try to look at using those as some way, some indication of what's happening below ground system. How do we go ahead and do that very easily? But what do we do with all this information afterwards? We have a pile of data here. Can we use just one of these items to give us some indication of what's happening below ground? Perhaps, again, if we're trying to rebuild a watch, we cannot look at one gear or one spring. We need to figure out a way to start integrating all of this information together. If we start looking at soil chemical properties, we can look at soil organic matter, we can look at micronutrients, pH, salinity, the cation exchange capacity, the electrical conductivity, and we can generate information for these different parameters. But how do we use that information to tell us what's happening below ground? Can we use just one of those factors or pieces of data to tell us what's going on? Again, I would suggest, depending upon what you want your soil to do, Maybe one of those components is enough, but we need to look at a way to integrate the chemical and the physical and the biological properties to give us a better picture of what's happening below ground. One of the things that I've been asked to talk more about today is soil organic matter and how do we enhance the ability of our soils to develop that soil organic matter below ground and how does that influence soil organic carbon and carbon sequestration. So soil organic matter is basically just plant and animal residues that are starting to build up on the ground. So the leaves fall to the ground, bird feathers hit the ground, cow manure hits the ground. All of that organic matter is showing up on the soil. And how does that get incorporated into the system? Does it spontaneously atomize and just release all the nutrients into the ground? It does not. It is actually influenced by soil organisms. It's that decomposition process of this organic matter as it hits the ground and breaks it down and immobilizes some of those nutrients and releases some of those nutrients and keeps the system functioning. So soil organic carbon is a part of soil organic matter. Soil organic matter is made up of a variety of nutrients and minerals. Soil organic carbon is one part of that. Usually about 50 to 60% of soil organic matter is your carbon within that system. And all of that soil organic carbon, as it's consumed by the microbes, by the fungi, by the springtails, by the mites, by the earthworms, that becomes part of their biomass. And that's stored within the soil system and slowly released over time as those organisms respire 
as they consume other organisms, as they die, as they defecate in the soil. Now, the soil organic matter, or soil, contains about three times as much carbon as the atmosphere or terrestrial vegetation, so it becomes a really good sink for holding on to carbon. Now, how does that compare when we're looking at these other systems? So we're talking about vegetation, about 610 gigatons of carbon as a reserve, atmosphere about 600, the soil is about 1,500 or more in that top, top meter, top two meters of soil. Sediments and rocks, significantly more than what you find in the top soil. This is something that is in constant cycle within the system. It is not some sort of stagnant amount of carbon that sits there. It is constantly being consumed, decomposed, and recycled within the soil system itself. So when we're looking at measuring, how do we measure soil organic matter? How do we measure soil organic carbon? What models are in place and how have we done it in the past and what are we going to do in the future for assessing this? We can look at the classic humification process. And we've all heard about this where organic matter decomposes and as it breaks down, it leaves behind different amounts of humic or recalcitrant organic matter that doesn't break down in the system. I would suggest that guaranteed there is some bacteria that's going to break down that piece of carbon at some point because it's going to be able to do that. And so there's not going to be carbon that's left there not being able to decompose because we can't get it. We can't get something to decompose it. It's just that it can't be reached at that particular time where there's a better source there. So from that classical humification process, we're moving into something that people are using called uh, progressive decomposition. So we're looking at organic matter that is slowly broken down over time until a point where it's all gone and been absorbed into the ecosystem. And that's why we're constantly having to add organic matter back into that system because it's being removed from the system. It's being immobilized in microbial biomass and other organisms' biomass. It's being released as available nitrogen and nutrients and carbon for the plants to take up so they can grow and produce whatever it is they're producing so that we can harvest whatever it is we're going to harvest or whatever the cows are going to feed or the sheep are going to feed on. So that progressive decomposition goes into some a new model that's come out. It's called the soil continuum model. And this is the constant addition of organic matter that's needed to the soil because this organic matter is constantly being broken down and used to maintain a functioning soil ecosystem. Wow, it looks so much better on a smaller screen. It's really washed out. The idea here is we're looking at plant and animal residues, and as they are being broken down, they're into larger polymers. They're into smaller, po smaller polymers here, smaller until it's just, just carbon that's left at the end being released into the environment. But each of these steps, we're looking at carbon that's being locked into the system, it's being retained in that system. It's not being released all at once, it is slowly being released over time. A lot of the models that are being used to give us a better understanding of soil organic matter and soil organic carbon tend to neglect the biological activity that's going on below ground. This becomes a critical component for looking at soil carbon and soil carbon sequestration. If we don't have the biology as part of the model, it becomes really difficult to get an idea of what's happening to the carbon below ground. Some newer models that are coming out of Russia are actually starting to include biological activity in that model development. So we're looking at 
faunal excrement. We're looking at the necromass or the dead tissue that's falling into that soil system. And we're looking at earthworm activity. And that's something that really hasn't been considered for a lot of these models when we're looking at soil carbon below ground. Now, how can we assess carbon? What new ways, besides the old way where you just take a soil sample, you bake it in the oven at 500 degrees Celsius, for two or three days and you look at carbon loss. There are a variety of different fractions of carbon. There's labile carbon, there's more recalcitrant carbon, there are different size fractions of the carbon. How can we assess that to get an understanding of what's happening to the carbon in that soil system? We can look at something like thermal stability. So we can look at carbon breaking down at different temperatures and what portions are coming off at different times. We can look at using drones to fly over fields and we can look at spectroscopy and use precision agriculture techniques to assess using infrared spectrometry what's happening to carbon sources below ground and how those map out over time. One of the big things about soil carbon is how it is how important it is to soil health and because so much carbon is used by the plant, so much carbon is used by the organisms, so much carbon is used by us, that needs to be constantly added to the system and replenished so the system can maintain that cycle that it's going through. So whether we're looking at a carbon cycle like this, nitrogen cycle like this, phosphorus or sulfur, all of these actually go together in the below ground ecosystem. All of these nutrients are part of a larger system. Again, we're going back to this watch idea. Instead of just looking at individual springs or sprockets, we're trying to integrate this together. All of these things you'll see go through that black box. And the black box is the soil biota, the soil organisms below ground. Everything is going through that black box. And it's a great black box, but we have very little idea what's going on in there. It looks something like this. It's a very complex food web below ground. There are a variety of organisms there feeding on each other, breaking down organic matter, releasing nutrients, allowing decomposition to occur in new and different habitats. When we're looking at the biology below ground, we're looking at a variety of different groups. We're looking at the microflora, things like the bacteria and the fungi, the microfauna, things like nematodes and protozoa, the mesofauna, my favorite group, the mites, the springtails, and the macrofauna, things that are easily seen by us above ground, things like earthworms and beetles and isopods. Now we not only have a lot of different species, in fact in a single teaspoon of soil you can have anywhere from five to ten thousand species of bacteria. In a square meter of soil you can have anywhere from two to three hundred species of arthropods. And just to put it into perspective, in the province of Alberta there are 95 mammal species. 96 if you count Bigfoot crossing over the Rockies, right? So the below ground habitat is an amazing habitat and I've really enjoyed studying it the last 20 years of work that I've been doing. It's a very interesting habitat. It's dark, it's opaque, and it's three-dimensional, which makes it very challenging to work in. But the diversity of species below ground rivals that of the coral reefs or tropical rainforests. In fact, some people have called it the poor man's tropical rainforest, which is good because I don't get a lot of research funding, so I can't afford to go to the tropics. I can just go to my backyard and sample these things. 
So again, we're looking at hundreds of species in a square meter. We're looking at tens of thousands of individuals in a square meter as well. So there's a lot of stuff going on below ground on these systems. What do these organisms do below ground? So we're looking at how they influence the decomposition process. We're looking at how they influence nutrient cycling and nutrient availability, and they also affect soil structure. How many people go out with the soils guys on their farm? Sometimes you go out, do they do, do, they do texturing of the soil? Yeah, and have you ever seen anyone do taste texturing? They put it in their mouths and they, they kind of run around and say, ooh, that's a sandy, loamy. Yeah, so for just the kids, yeah, there you go, right? So one of the things you want to notice here is the amount of fecal material that shows up from the mesofauna and the earthworms, right? you'll actually get horizons that are made up of fecal material from most of these organisms. In fact, one of the people I used to work with, his famous phrase was, bug poop grows trees. And, and that's something to think about. If the soils guy says, hey, you should taste this, just say no politely and, and let him do his thing. Um, so the macrofauna, we've got the macroflora, for the most part, the bacteria and the fungi do the majority of the heavy lifting for fragmenting and degrading the soil organic matter. They're immobilizing nutrients within their own biomass. As they consume that material, they're also mineralizing nutrients, releasing those things and making them available for the plants to take up in those systems. Most of them are very sloppy eaters, so they're releasing slimes and mucilages as they feed on this material, and that's binding the soils together. That's making those soil aggregates and building the soil structure below ground. The microfauna, things like the nematodes and the protozoa, are feeding on the microflora. A single protozoa can eat anywhere from 15 to 20,000 bacteria a day. So they're busy every day consuming stuff. They're fragmenting soil organic matter. They're regulating the populations of the microflora. They're altering the chemistry of that soil organic matter as they feed on it and change the soil, uh, fragment the soil organic matter. And again, they tend to be very sloppy eaters. So the slimes and the mucilages and the debris that's cast off as they're feeding helps build soil structure below ground. The mesofauna, the springtails, the mites, those sorts of things, as they chew through the organic matter, feeding on the fungi and the bacteria, the protozoa and the nematodes, they're increasing the surface area of that, making it more available for the bacteria and the fungi to start breaking that material down. They're regulating those populations, and as they consume the organic matter, they're changing the chemical structure of that material as well, making it more amenable for other organisms to break the material down. And they're also depositing a lot of fecal material. They're busy. They're doing their thing, and they're building the soil structure below ground. Things like the macrofauna, we're looking at a lot of the earthworms, we're looking at ants, we're looking at isopods, fragmenting the organic matter, increasing surface area of the organic matter, allowing decomposition to happen in a very fast and efficient way, stimulating nutrient cycling and the availability of nutrients for plants to take up, providing a lot of fecal material in there. Again, soil structure building that up. They're also redistributing a lot of material as well. Earthworms, as they move deeper into the soil profile, will bring up mineral soil to the surface. As part of that process, they'll bring organic matter deeper down into the soil profile, making those nutrients available to the microbes and the bacteria that are deeper in the soil profile. So you've got that mixing in there that's actually helping to develop soil tilth. So you've got all these organisms. What does that mean when you're thinking of a 1,000 or 10,000 species of bacteria in a teaspoon of soil? 
it's kind of hard to put a number on it. So we'll start looking at biomass values, and we've seen some estimates of about, oops, about 15 tons per hectare of soil biota in most uh, undisturbed grassland system. Microflora make up about half of that, about four to nine tons. Earthworm biomass, if the earthworm population is half decent, about two and a half tons. So this 15 tons represents about 100 to 200 sheep per hectare. Oh, depths here. So most of the biota is probably in the top 30 to 40 centimeters. Somebody owes everybody a beer. <laughs> organic beer? Organic, sure. Organic beer. I, I'll take that. Um, yeah, so in the top top 30 to 40 centimeters, that's where most of the biological activity is going. So that's where you've got this sort of biomass going on. In a disturbed system, in a farming system, you might have a quarter of this at any one time with conventional practices. So it's definitely changing that system and how that system functions in the short term. Can we change that in the long term? We'll proceed and see what we can get to. How many people have seen this? This Was it this year, last year? The Soil Your Undies movement? Yay! Right, so here they're talking about using this to assess the health of your soil by looking at the biological activity so really, we're trying to break down white carbon, white cotton carbon in the soil, and you're hoping that it breaks down. Do we know what's happening to that material? Something's breaking it down. Do we know what? When you've got five to 10,000 species of bacteria in a soil, in a teaspoon of soil, I have no clue what species is doing that. But I'll bet you dollars to donuts that it takes most of them to do it. And we need to have a better handle on that community diversity and what's going on below ground in order to make sure this is happening. So we're talking about soil carbon sequestration here. What, what are we talking about? We're talking about the removal and long-term storage of carbon from the atmosphere. This can be done in oceans and forests or soils, and it's usually through physical or biological activity. I'm going to focus on the biological activity, right? We're looking at decomposition of organic matter broken down by the biology. So the bacteria, the fungi are feeding on that organic matter. They're being fed upon by nematodes, by protozoa. They're being fed upon by mites and springtails. They're being fed upon by earthworms and the other macrofauna. All of those things are breaking down that material and incorporating that carbon into their own biomass, and they're retaining it in that system. So the bigger the population, the more carbon is going to be held within that system. And we're going back and thinking about the biomass. That's what we're looking to build up to retain carbon in the system, to have that healthy functioning ecosystem below ground, that diverse community structure with the population and the biomass there to retain the carbon in the system. Now, does it stay there for the long term? No, because eventually things die. And that material gets released back into the system. As it decomposes over time, things breathe, things respire, they feed on other things, and you're releasing carbon dioxide back into the system. But it happens at a slow rate. It's not released all at once, it happens over a period of time. And it happens kind of in a nice little order, right? So during the summer, things are really active, breathing a lot, and they're releasing carbon dioxide because they're doing what they do. In the winter time, they slow down quite a bit. It's not to say that they stop. Some of them go to sleep. Some of them don't. They're active at a very, very low rate. So they're still respiring. They're releasing very little carbon dioxide. But 
Most of the biomass is retained below ground. So we're looking at trying to enhance that community structure to retain the carbon in the long term below ground and slowly release it back over time. So what influence do agricultural practices have on this below ground community, this below ground ecosystem and its functionality? We can look at a variety of different practices. We can look at the influence of crop types and rotation. We can look at different soils and the influence that has on the organisms there. Cover crops, different tillage practices, grazing, fertilizers, pesticides, organic amendments. And that's something that we see a lot more of now. We've got a lot of organic matter that's being added to farming systems, whether that's manure, whether it's straw or bedding material, whether it's compost tea or some form of that material. We've also got more permanent plant growth that's being considered. We can actually look at any some of these modifications and trying to offset potentially as much as 20% of our carbon uh, CO2 emissions annually with using some of these modified systems. As an example, um, some work I did down in southern Alberta looking at native grasslands, and this is just the density of soil organisms in these systems. Um, density of mostly mesofauna, so springtails and mites. Here we're looking in this system about 350,000 individuals per square meter in native soil. And the material that was turned into grassland, um, we're looking at about 50,000 individuals per square meter. In older grassland, this is a system that had returned and been left about 25 to 30 years, and we're just below 200,000 individuals per square meter here. So we can see in disturbed systems, you've got this generally reduced diversity and density of organisms there. So you're going to have very limited capacity to store carbon in that system, very limited capacity for that system to function properly or at an optimum level. When we're looking at trying to reduce uh, carbon emissions or trying to sequester more carbon in these systems, we can look at two different types of um, groupings for most of this stuff. We're looking at reducing or displacing emissions, so increased efficiency in uh, farming machinery and practices to reduce the amount of um, fuel that we're going to use. Or we can look at enhancing carbon renewal. So we're going to try to interrupt that natural system and the addition of material and trying to keep that locked below ground instead of having it cycle through in a normal way. Most conventional systems that, um, most conventional agricultural systems we're looking at a homogenous soil community that's there. It's something that's kept in a very sort of, um, a very, very simple state, a very, very primary succession sort of stage. So you've got this constant disturbance that's happening to that system. So the community never has a chance to, to be developed fully, become very diverse. It would be kind of like going down to Calgary and nothing against Calgary, even though I'm from Edmonton. But if you went to 17th Street and you sort of bulldozed it and piled it up at the end of the street and then you spread it back out the next year, you're not going to say that that's 17th Street and it's working really well. Right? It takes a while for it to recover, but if you're doing that every year, what's going to happen to 17th Street? People aren't going to come back to that. Right? So we want to try to look at not impacting the system as heavily as we can. We want to try to maintain a certain level of non-disturbance and allow those organisms to come back and function in a normal way. 
With tillage practices, we're looking at a constant influence or constant change to physical and chemical properties in the soil. We're losing soil structure for the most part. We're increasing the risk of soil erosion. We're losing the soil organic matter. And the reason we're losing soil organic matter is because we're incorporating the soil organic matter and making it available for the bacteria and the fungi to decompose it so much more quickly. And then it's gone. We're not looking at building up the capacity to retain that soil organic matter and have it break down slowly over the longer term. As a result of that change in habitat and the chemical properties, we're losing the soil biota. We're creating a reduced community and its function. In fact, most of what happens when we're looking at tillage and just conventional tillage, we're increasing the bacteria. It's becoming a bacterial-dominated community, and we're influencing the type of organisms that are going to feed on the bacteria, limiting its capacity to break material down and cycle nutrients and make them available for plants to use. Using something like no-till or zero-till practices, we're looking at trying to increase the structure of that soil, making it more amenable to organisms and their habitat there. We're looking at trying to immobilize more nutrients within that system and make that system function more properly without our influence or impact to it. We're looking at potentially reducing the decomposition rate. So we're looking at slowing things down, tying up nutrients within that soil ecosystem, retaining nutrients and carbon in that system in a longer term and releasing them more slowly and allowing plants to take up those nutrients when they need to take them up. We're retaining moisture, we're making the habitat better, we're allowing for an increase in density and diversity of the soil organisms that are living below ground. Grazing also has an impact on the below ground ecosystem. We're looking at, depending upon the number of animals that are grazing on a site, we're looking at increasing bulk density, we're going to change the soil temperature, we're going to make things warmer, we're going to allow decomposition to happen more rapidly, and we're going to lose nutrients and carbon in that system faster. We're going to lose soil organic matter, we're going to have higher erosion rates, we're going to have lower soil moisture, we're going to change the aggregate stability of that system, and we're going to make it less hospitable for the organisms below ground with conventional grazing. So we need to pay attention to the number of animals that are grazing in those ecosystems. The addition of fertilizers and pesticides become a problem. The more of this material we have to add, we can have direct effects and indirect effects on the organisms below ground. Direct effects, we're altering the chemistry of that below ground habitat. Also, the organisms, depending upon if they come in direct contact with that material, they're going to die straight away. Or we can have indirect effects to that ecosystem. We can change the chemistry, we can change the food availability, we're changing the habitat or the climate of that system, we're making it almost impossible for some of those organisms to live in that habitat. The addition of nitrogen fertilizers, we're looking at changing or increasing osmotic pressure so it makes it harder for organisms to live in there. We're changing the soil pH, we're changing the amount of soil organic matter in those systems, we're changing the food supply potentially for the animals living below ground. That's going to make it hard for them to live there. We're going to reduce the density and we're going to make that system function more poorly. The addition of urea fertilizers, we're looking at changing the community structure again. More a dominant, more 
bacterial dominated system, bacteria are feeding bacterial feeding nematodes on that system. The addition of pneumonia, we're going to change the bacterial community as well. And use of liming, we're going to change earthworm abundance there. We're going to have more of uh, earthworm densities increase as opposed to enchytraids earthworm or enchytraid worms that are going to be reduced. Two different species of worms belonging to the same group, but functioning at a different level, right? Most earthworms, the lumbricids within Canada are introduced species at this point. Um, there are very few native species left. I think there's about four or five of them. Most of them are on the west coast in refugia. All of the species we're finding now are European ones that have been introduced as people came across, planted their favorite plants from back east, back far east, and now we've got earthworms showing up. If you're going out and fishing somewhere, how many times have people gone out to fish and taken their worms and at the end of the day said, yeah, I'm not going to carry these back and just sort of drop them in the woods. And we're starting to see earthworms show up in very, very interesting places where they haven't been before. That's not to say that these systems aren't going to function well, it's just that they're going to function differently and you have to be prepared for understanding what that's going to cause. Application of pesticides can have varying responses on the soil organisms below ground and that's going to influence the decomposition rates and the capacity for the system to function properly. Depending upon what's applied, how it's applied and the organisms that are present, some species are um, some species decrease in number, some of them increase, some of them are not affected at all, but it really depends on what's there beforehand. And we have very little idea of the density and diversity of most of the below ground ecosystems. Overall, what are we going to, what practices enhance soil health and which practices reduce soil health? For most of these, we're looking at no-till or reduced till that's gonna make the soils function a little better. The use of cover crops, diverse crop rotation, perennial crops, crop residue retention, organic fertilizer application. And these are things that the previous group were talking about doing on their farms and a lot of people are doing right now as well. We tend not to see a lot of tillage happening these days. We're tending to see less fallow, uh, crop, fallow fields. Annual cropping is something that we're not doing a lot of. A lot of people are looking at changing from inorganic fertilizers to organic fertilizers to help those systems function better and to reduce the impact on the biodiversity and things that's happening below ground. There are a couple of things going on between us and between nature. We've kind of become slaves to the soil. We actually have to go in and we have to prepare the seed beds and we have to do the planting. We have to provide chemical pesticides and herbicides to control crops. Thank you. And we're applying chemical fertilizers because we want to have a certain yield. But I think nature does that, a lot of that stuff already and does it for free. Right? A lot of natural seed dispersal, a lot of natural control of weeds and insect pests and pathogens, assuming that the biology is there to provide those services, and a lot of decomposition and nutrient cycling of organic matter, provided that organic matter is there for those organisms to use. So we can either do a lot of this work ourselves, or we can try to harvest, harness the organisms below ground and have them help us out to do the work we want to do. There's a variety of studies that have gone on in the past. Um, Alberta, um, I can't even remember what they were called at the time. I think it was environment and agriculture, but now it's environment and parks or something. 
they ended up doing a 10-year study looking at soil quality within the province. And they've got a bunch of benchmark sites that they've placed throughout the province, and they were all sampled about 10 years ago. They've got this material that's been archived, so we're looking at an opportunity here to go out and try to assess what's happened in the intervening 10 years and use that as an idea of how various practices on these farming sites have influenced the soil health or soil quality. We can use that as a benchmark and we can go forward and look at soil chemical and physical properties, but we can also add the soil biology to it as well and get a better understanding of what's happening in those below ground systems. So again, what we want to try to do is we want to try to get healthy soil that's going to provide food, that's going to help reduce uh, climate change, and it's going to help us retain water within that system so that we can build that watch again and use that to help us tell, what's, tell us what's going on in the below ground system. And so we can just take a look and know that we're dealing with a healthy, happy soil. Um, so yeah, above all this above ground diversity of terrestrial productivity, the key to it is the below ground soil and the healthy functioning of that soil system. All right, we'll jump into trying to unpack this presentation. And for people listening right now, this is a really hard one to do. I think out of all the organic Alberta presentations we had from that conference, this is really the hardest one to dissect. So please bear with us. There's probably going to be a lot of tripping over words, uh, not quite clarify. We're going to do the best we can right here. So I'm going to start with, I think this is a softball question, but I really don't know. Uh, one thing I found interesting at the very beginning of Batagelli's presentation, he said that soil was a non-renewable resource. I think about six podcast episodes, I said it was a renewable resource because that particular scientist said that. So I've heard quite often people refer to soil as a renewable resource. He's saying something different. I'm just curious where you stand on all this, Kim. When we're talking about geological soil formation, which is the breakdown of parent material into soil, that is a very, very long process. And it is definitely would we would put it in the category of a non-renewable scenario like because technically even fossil fuels are a renewable resource because some of the plant material we have may in however many fossil like, like so however many millions of years yeah, from exactly. now that yeah. might be coal but yeah. it's a long process so we call it non-renewable because it's not quick. And so that's what he's talking about, soil being a non-renewable resource. But what we're seeing with a lot of the producers that are doing innovative practices and are like working with their biology and their soil and working with the ecosystem that exists is that we're seeing more soil organic matter or more soil carbon year over year. Some of the producers I've worked with have taken theirs from 2% to 5% over 20 years. So it's a significant increase. And so that would mean that they're actually increasing, quote unquote, their topsoil. Mm. And so, and they're, they're doing that by every practice. And it's not just coming from the atmosphere. It's also coming from because they're growing more perennial crops and all sorts of things and grazing in a way that's very effective for increasing this, like the soil material or the topsoil material. So that's what's happening. So that's why you're getting these like two different stories. So they're both correct, mm. but it's just how you want to, it's how you want to frame the 
the conversation or how you're looking at soil form formation. Right. Okay. No, that makes sense. Like soil itself is a really diverse thing. Like it, I, especially when you listen to uh, Dr. Bellagelli's presentation, it just soil sounds like a whole universe to itself. So yeah, I think it's probably unrealistic to expect that it doesn't matter how far you go down, the same thing's happening all over the place. And one thing I really liked in the presentation was that whole, like that watch reference he brought up. Like I, I kind of got it when he's saying, yeah, you know, we got the watch, we've taken it apart, but we kind of forgot how to put it back together because we just focus on that one part. And I know you said once in a while you use a watch reference. So I sort of understand the comment he's making on soil science. But since I haven't, this is all very new to me. I don't know what was, what has been going wrong or what are we doing wrong or what could we be doing better in the future, really? Well, the way that it works in most academic situations is you become an expert on one thing or one area you pick one type of microbe like you'll pick a type of fungus to to study or you'll pick like he talks about he loves the mites it's that those are his the arthropods are are Jeff's thing and so the arthropods like have a very important role to play but how we often do PhD theses and 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 people build their entire academic careers around like we're looking at one piece and so he's talking about like all those different microbes you've got all these specialists in these different things and then and then they're they've they those are like the little individual widgets or gears or whatever of the watch and so everybody's like pulled the part of the watch apart they've taken those little widgets and they've gone away and they've studied them in isolation just looking at that widget mm. and so and then but he's he always talks about it that you know, when it comes to an agricultural producer, you don't actually care about that one little widget. You care, you care about how it all comes together and if the watch will tell time and will actually tell you what you need to know all the time about what's going on. And so that's that when he's using that watch reference, it's really like trying to get all these people with all these different aspects to, to, to come together and really look at how the ecosystem functions and how when you're affecting the arthropods, how that might be affecting the mycorrhizal fungi or how when you plant a higher diversity of a forage crop, that's impacting the microbes and how all those pieces and it actually turns into food production instead of how it which is the telling time, as opposed to it's just really all cool that there's all these pieces, but you still don't tell. Like and I, when he says the watch is, the watch is correct twice a day, because mm -hmm. it's, it's not actually working at all. And it, you know, any even a watch that's broken is right twice a day. Yeah, right. Yeah, it almost makes you think that we need like a, a holistic management approach to something like soil science. I think that would be phenomenal. Like it would be, it's, I always find it interesting because in working with Dr. Christine Nichols and, mm. and I was talking to someone about her and they're like, oh, she's a microbiologist. And I said, yeah. And they said, oh, well, if she was going to be adjunct at a university. She would be in the biological sciences department. And I was like, wouldn't she be better used in the agriculture department? Yeah, I guess it is the world we live in right now, I suppose. Uh, another nice reference I liked in there, he was saying how soil is like the poor man's tropical rainforest. And at first when I heard that, I was like, so does that mean it's like a crappy rainforest? But I think he was saying that you can save money on airfare, you can just go in your backyard, dig, and assuming you have a really good uh, 
microscope, you should be able to see quite a bit down there. Just kind of, what do you think about this description for soil? I think that there's there's so much diversity in soil and they've only actually even identified 20% of the microbes in soil. So we, we just, that's like having census data on 20% of the population. And so let alone how, how those microbes interact with each other and what their roles are, you just only have the names of 20% of them. So it's that there's, there's more biological diversity in, in, a teaspoon of soil than there is in these huge tracts of ecosystems. And mm. so that's what, that's what he's talking about that, you know, the soil has all of these different aspects. It's just, we don't really think about it because we don't, most of us don't look through microscopes very much. Yeah, exactly. And he also like later on in the presentation, he was talking about how we need this big, thriving, diverse community of soil organisms to, well, basically sequester carbon. Uh, I, why, how, I guess, how is agriculture producers? I can't, you know, you can, you can breed a bunch of different type of animals like sheep, cattle, stuff like that. But I really, I can't really do much about these soil organisms directly at least, but like, what are the indirect things I can do to help build a big thriving community of soil organisms that can then help with carbon sequestration? So it's the above, as above, so below. So if you're growing a monocrop, the likelihood that you're going to have a complex microbial world underneath that is is reduced mm. because there's not that many different kinds of plants. Different plants I d- associate with different types of, of microbes. Like we always talk about nitrogen-fixing plants, legumes, mm. which the bacteria that fixes nitrogen only occurs on certain types of plants. So you're not going to have nitrogen-fixing bacteria if you don't have a legume in the system. So um, if there's large, you know, allowing that microbial community to exist and and to, to, to develop into a mature community is another way. If we're, there's constant chemical and physical disturbance, it's it just is not going to be, it's like bombs going off all the time. And people are, the the microbes are like there and we're going to have to rebuild. But it's like, it's really hard to have like a super thriving business as a baker. If your, if your bakery keeps getting blown up every once a year. That would be very difficult. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, okay. That above ground diversity. So we're really, we're, we're trying to at least like shoot for the diversity that you'd find in a forest or find in like native prairie, which I I think he may have sort of when he was talking about baseline values of soil, like are you saying we need good baseline values to know basically where where we're going if we're trying to build up soil health, soil carbon? But when I heard that, I was like, but okay, we we just established we depleted a bunch of soil or sorry, a bunch of carbon from our soil already. So we like the stuff we have right now doesn't seem like it's great for a baseline value because we know it can be better. But is that I don't know is that the role of native prairie then? Is that what our baseline value should be? for producers working with pasture land or crops and stuff like that. Yeah, thankfully there's there's areas of the prairie that have been too rocky to till or they've just been bad topography. And I know topography does affect carbon sequestration and soil carbon storage, but um, there, are, there are still thankfully pockets of native prairie that we can kind of see where we were. And it's not, you know, there's still invasive species and there's still tame fescue and different grasses that are invading those native native areas. But um, it's a lot more intact. If it has never been broken, it at least gives us like a, 
a, a concept of what we've lost. Okay, when we're establishing those uh, baseline values, and he went over a few different measurement models, which were extremely complex, I found. Uh, so I don't want to ask you to break those down because I think that'd be very, very unfair. I'm just curious, just because the science is quite new, like how has carbon measurement worked up until this point? Where does it need to go? Just a, just a few thoughts from you on that. Um, well, to measure carbon on the landscape, it required, um, it had typically been done through, like you f- pick your plot of land and then you do a grid strict, a grid systemed uh, sampling plot sampling plan, and then you would take samples from all of those areas, and then from that you'd calculate how much carbon was actually in that area, and that's how you'd get tons per acre, basically, or tons per hectare. And um, but we're starting to see um, with the development of machine learning and a lot of remotely sensed data from satellites and and there's like you know since Google Earth and just there's all these different satellites that are providing more and more information that at less and less of a cost, um, we're able to have like a much different idea of what might already be there before we start sampling. So we can sample more selectively and more targetedly to, to, to measure the, the, or to represent the full conditions of landscape features. And so that means we can reduce the amount of samples and then reduce the cost in regards to sampling. And also there's like technological innovations like spectrometry and he mentions it in the in the in the end of the presentation that there's there's different ways that so we're none of the technology is like ready to work out of the box, but it's with with getting some reference values that to, if you could use the traditional laboratory methods and then we use spectroscopy, we can actually start to develop like tables and correlative. Now I'm starting to get sounding too sciencey, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but correlative values or like they, like we can correlate what we know this we know this is this and then it looks like this on a spectrometer and so that helps us potentially bring down the cost of of sampling and measuring and being able to baseline where we are now and look for changes. Okay. And uh, he also mentioned there's some very simplistic ways you could test your soil. As I mentioned, what was it? Taste texturing your soil. So it's not literally putting, I think he said worm poo in his mouth actually, but I think he meant putting the soil in his mouth. And the other thing, which I'd never heard of was this whole soil your undies campaign. Want to explain these to me? Because I'm not too sure. I I don't know if I'm going to sac- sacrifice a pair of minder pants for something like that. But uh, <laughs> maybe it's really important. It's something I should be doing. This soil. So I'll start with the soil your indies thing. Um, that was a movement that came out a couple years ago, where you took a clean pair of white underwear and you buried them in the ground, and the length of time it took for them to be broken down gave you an indication of the amount of microbes that were uh, active in your soil and so because the that cotton 
carbon that was a, a means that the, the microbes would break down. And so if you had really biologically active soil, it would go quicker. And if it was not as active of a system and as, as developed of a biological system, it would take longer. So it was supposed to be just like a funny feedback loop and it was kind of a soil your undies, ha 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 kind of moment. So Catchy. Do you, yeah. actually, do you know how quick that would or do you know anybody who did it or like are we talking I weeks know, or years? I think it's like months huh. to to many more months. Okay. So I think like it could break down pretty fast if okay. you've got pretty biologically active soil, but um, it could take a lot longer if it was like, you know, degraded and monoculture type soil. There's so. Okay. Okay. So like, you know, if, just in case you had second thoughts about it after the first week, you had a chance to dig it up and try and wash out all the dirt. I think it would just be easier to sacrifice your underwear. <laughs> just don't have that many pairs. That's my problem. Uh, and with the, the taste texturing thing, I don't quite get that either. It's, um, that, that was new. I had not heard that until this, this process. Okay. And, um, but you know, when you're out in the forest and you get that kind of like, oh, earthy, foresty smell, that's, that's the microbes that you're smelling. Like you're, you're just, you're smelling a complexity of microbes. Mm. And so, um, that which you can smell, you can also taste. And so I think that there are people that are kind of like almost sommeliers of the soil that they are, they are used to as a sommelier for wine can tell you exactly what region it's from because they can taste in the grapes, Mm. the, the small, like, the different influences of other things growing around there or the amount of minerals in the soil and all of those things, that terroir idea, um, there to, to be like completely, um, practical or literal about it. That's what the soil, that's Mm. what, what people that are trained to do that. And so in the same way that when you, that taste in yogurt is bacteria, that's what you're tasting or, or, and so, and it's the same thing in soil. So you've got people that are really uh, have figured out what everything kind of tastes like, and they can tell you about how much diversity is in the soil based on taste. That's that's amazing. Uh, I think I should I should add. I think that's my take on that situation. I don't actually know. <laughs> they don't just put it in the mouth like needs ten million more mites. <laughs> Uh, one, uh, another neat part in the presentation I didn't really think of was like the, the seasonality of storing carbon. It, it almost like, it almost follows, well, I guess it makes sense. Yeah. It follows a food cycle. It, it is sort of a seasonal product in the sense, cause where he was talking in the summer, it, it's cycling a lot more, but in the winter, it's more or less locked down in the ground. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Am I interpreting it correctly or is it a bit more nuanced than that? Yeah. Well, you can just see like when it gets microbes are a lot like people but even worse when it gets cold they just slow down and so there there isn't the turnover there isn't the interaction just like plants aren't growing the microbes aren't aren't interacting and if you think about like a lot of the things that feed that microbial community and the ground is the photosynthesis it's the green plant and the photosynthesis so if you don't have any carbon coming into the system new carbon coming into the system that really jacks up that process there's there's not going to be a lot of activity it's like if you don't fill your car up with fuel 
you're not really going anywhere. Uh, One thing that didn't come up in the presentation, and he only had about 45 minutes to talk, was just the impact that moisture can have on soil carbon sequestration. I was just wondering if you could fill fill in the blank for us there. Well, I've heard him in other presentations talk about that soil is actually like a subaquatic ecosystem because there's so much moisture at present in soil for the most part. And, and so when we have moisture, we know this from gym bags and hockey equipment, when there's things are put away damp, that mm. tends to be a good place for bacteria and, and microbes to grow. And so if, if there's, if it's dry, it's not a good environment for microbes to grow. So the more moisture you have, obviously within reason, you can get soils that you have standing water and then the it, it doesn't become hospitable, but there's kind of a, a fine, there's a, a sweet spot where you, you're going to have enough moisture to really promote the microbes. Hmm. And I really appreciate you not talking about my stinky gym bag like you did last time. <laughs> thank you very much, Kimberly. <laughs> Dr. Bedigali also re- makes reference to some of the agricultural practices that could help with sequestration, also can help with soil biology. Like, it, it's hard to expect him to know them all because he's not a farmer himself. I'm just wondering, like, obviously, we know which ones he mentioned. Is there anything he left out that you think people need to know about? I, I think intensively managed grazing or adaptive multi-paddock grazing. Um, he referred to just having too many cattle on the landscape, which is is true. Um, you don't want to overstock, but if you're doing uh, intensive management where you're, you have quite a large number of cattle on the landscape for a certain period of time, and then it's given the chance to rest, that's actually a really um, useful way to increase soil health because it, it kind of, it stresses the system enough so that it kind of comes back with Ferocity, and you've got like when the plants are being eaten down. There's like you know kind of uh, peripheral ner- uh, peripheral roots that are are not supported. They're not getting enough enough carbon in to to support those roots when the the plant on the top is getting eaten down, and so then they release into the, they kind of slough off and release. And so that's like a, the litter breakdown. Mm. And then it also is a way that the, 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 that when the plant's been stressed, it also will have like a growth. It's just like how new trees sequester more carbon than older trees. It's just, it's making that system really healthy and that it's really emulating how the prairies evolved with the bison mm. herds roaming. So that's, that's one aspect. And then also looking at, um, uh, above ground biodiversity, uh, in the form of cover crops and, and just keeping a living root in the, in the soil as much of the year as possible, even in a cropping system, that makes a huge difference in the ability to feed that above ground or the below ground biodiversity okay okay and uh yeah you made a few actually no this is the question i want to ask the whole thing when he was talking about ripping up 17th street which i think he meant 17th ave in calgary uh but uh i I think that's a fairly accurate way of painting a picture we were talking about a little bit earlier that yeah of course you can't just rip something up and then expect aha i put it back and we have 17th ab again exactly it's back to that bomb analogy like it just is you level the you level 17th 
have and you're not going to have, or even if you just bulldozed it all to one end, then, you know, even if you put the buildings back, you've still got, you know, chairs from one restaurant and another, in another restaurant and, and, and probably like the, you know, how the kitchens get put back together. They're not functional systems. And, and then if there's a disruption to the staff, like you've got this great cohesive team and they're working fantastically. And, and like, one of the chefs from one restaurant ends up at a different one and the teams aren't there and they don't even know each other and then they're not they're not going to work efficiently together. And mm-hmm. so I think that's really what he's talking about is we develop these communities, we develop these these fast ways of of understanding what's going on and and we create functional systems with the the community of people that are in a situation or and and also the equipment that we have and if you mix that all up and jumble it all up it takes a lot of work to put it back together and so that's what when we're doing like tillage on an annual basis that's what we're doing to the to the soil microbes like they work really hard and they develop all these interconnections and relationships and bargaining chips with each other and they 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 get quick, quick, almost simultaneous, like chemical signaling. And then you just break up the entire process that is, has started to develop because you just want to take a different approach to agriculture. And I think the reason that we've done that is we've never really understand, like we're just fully beginning to understand how complex that system is and how much nature's doing for us because we've kind of thought oh if we just provide N- NPK to the plants they'll grow and it's fine and it's up to us to give them that but there's so much else happening in the soil mm. and, we're, and we're definitely not trying to attack any crop producers with this at all like it, we, annuals are necessary right now and it's just I guess it's trying to find that balance we're trying to find a way to not completely disrupt the community like obviously in agriculture there's going to be an impact you can't get around that so and with the advances we made in soil science like maybe we can minimize that impact a little bit more in the Mm -hmm. future and i and i think like no-till is much better Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways for allowing those microbes to be there there's there's with the chemical inputs there's there's consequences to that um that are different than the consequences of doing like an organic system with tillage. Um, but I think we just we just need to keep working on advances to be able to hopefully have either perennial grain systems or cover cropping systems that work with annual crops but keep cover in the soil or you know I just I think we're we're entering a phase where you know we have a lot of access to technological, development and and breakthroughs and it's going to be really critical for our long-term sustainability and food supply and climate stability totally and that stuff needs to pay too like you can't expect producers just to do that because it's the right thing by ecology i like the concept but you just like we have this unrealistic idea that food should be super cheap anyway so there has to if we're going to do something like this it needs to be a bit of give and take here absolutely it needs to be scalable Mm, totally uh, with uh, tillage, uh, he mentioned this is something I didn't quite get. So he said that with tillage, it increases bacteria. And it, it sounds like, well, bacteria, they're helping out with sequestration. So if tillage increases bacteria, why is that a bad thing? Um, well, it makes so the bacteria makes the nutrients available. Um, so that's why 
like when we broke the prairies, especially in like the 1900s, that was just, we just created these like systems where we were extracting the carbon that was in the soil and the, the organic matter. Um, but for us to have like healthy soil, we probably want a more balanced um, level between fungus, fungal communities and bacterial communities. And what tillage does is it pushes it much more into the earlier they call it secession point um, uh, at the uh, when something's a brand new system and it's just been disturbed. It tends to be bacterial, and as it gets more advanced and more complex, there there becomes a more fungal parts of the community. So tillage just pushes everything back to that bacterial level, but it makes it for quick for annual crops. It makes it quick, and it and and the plants can use that, but there's there's longer term consequences of it. Okay. And in the second half of the presentation, Dr. Badigali said we should try to reduce decomposition rates. But if decomposition is part of the whole process, I guess, the, I guess I'm a little confused on that. Like, why would we want to reduce the decomposition rates in the soil? If Is he talking about what's happening above ground or within the soil? Uh, I don't know if you're following the question at all because I didn't phrase it very well. I think... What he's talking about is that we've got carbon in the soil and depending on how we are treating the, like depending on the practices that we're doing, we're either going to increase the ability for that carbon to break down and be re-released back into the atmosphere. Mm. And so if we do some practices, we can slow that process down or hopefully get more carbon from the atmosphere into the system. And so that even though the microbes are eating some of it, there's still some of it that's staying put. Um, but when we're doing high, like when we're doing high tillage or high turnover of soil, we're really kind of, it's almost like the tillage is almost like lighting the carbon in the soil on fire. Mm. And so it, it releases really quickly. And so that's what he's, I think that's what he meant by when we're really, we're slowing the decomposition. You don't want to light it on fire. You want to kind of have a slow, you know, slow consumption of it instead of a fast, quick consumption where we get a, a hit of something, but then there's nothing left. Okay. No, I think I get it. So yeah, it's more, it's not so much like slowed down the decomposition of like the, the plant and animal matter that's up on the surface is more slowing down that decomposition that's happening beneath our feet, more or less. I, that would be my take on it. But I, you would have to ask Jeff specifically. <laughs> <laughs> well, since he's not here right now, I'm taking your word on this. <laughs> uh, also, while we're on the whole uh, subject of tillage, so we've got no-till, which we've established as a good thing you can lock carbon in the ground but usually no-till requires spraying uh, like we, we just did an organic no-till no episode a few weeks ago i believe it was and in those presentations a lot of the presenters were saying we don't know if this works so one researcher from manitoba was saying it's probably something that you're not going to do every year it's probably going to be once in a while in the rotation so this, um, this is a very long-winded way of saying okay we got no-till which is good for soil carbon sequestration but spraying likely is affecting the biology in the soil and we said at the very beginning of this conversation we want that big thriving community of soil organisms to help soil carbon sequestration so what the hell do we do here i don't know it just feels like you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't i, I don't know what the answer is and i'm just kind of wondering what you're thinking well i think that 
yeah, we're, I'm, I would be hopeful that some of the new um, plant breeding might be coming out with some different types of cover crops that can uh, not compete with annual crops, but they would, they, they, they're like, these are some of the things that people are working on where they're, you'd have a cover crop that lives in the soil year round, but it's very sensitive to heat. So it goes dormant when this, the soil would be warm enough to support most annual crops. Something like that would be a technological evolution or a techno- technological development, um, depending on how the, the, new type of plant was derived from but um that's one way we can move forward but when we look at um yeah because that would help reduce the amount of chemical like pesticides and fertilizers that we need for those systems too um because those are when we're using fertilizers like they they're basically they're just really available sources of nutrients and so it's just like when you're hungry, you go to McDonald's, you go through the drive-through, the fast if you're hungry and the fastest thing you want, you just go straight to McDonald's and you eat that food. Whereas if you go to the farmers market and go home and cook and it's you're not going to eat as quickly. And so the plants are the same way like they they if they're if there's McDonald's there, they're going to eat it. And they're not going to bother making those associates. They're not going to drive across town to the farmers market and they're not going to stand in their kitchen and cook because it's, it's easier to eat the other thing. And so what that means is that all of those, like the farmer's market analogy is making those interconnect, like those plants making the connections with the microbes so that they get the nutrients that they need. And so then that supports this diverse microbial community that when you're using chemical, chemicals the same way, you just, it just doesn't happen. And it's not that they're, they're just different approaches. You're still eating. Mm. But if, you know, there may be potential consequences of if you eat McDonald's every day versus if you eat, like, more slow home-cooked food. Mm. But that's, you know, lots of people live for a lot of years on McDonald's. So I'm not saying that there's, you know, it's it, they're just there's consequences to each process. It's not good or bad. It's just there's consequences. I gotta say, I appreciate you taking on that. It is a very tough question because it is a very contentious issue in the community right now. You're talking about regen egg, conventional agriculture, some people call it traditional agriculture. Do you spray? Do you do minimal till? Like, I think just we as an agricultural community, we're still trying to figure out a lot of this. And I think it's important. Yeah, go by the science realize the science is evolving and in our approach in these conversations and other conversations we have with neighbors and stuff just like we don't have all the answers and we could be wrong on this kind of stuff we we are finding out so much about that world below us right now totally it's just like i think with each successive technological development we see the world really differently and that's like with the advent of or the accessibility of metagenomics and and different things like that like it was the reason that we looked at the chemical properties of the soil was because they were easy to test and and it and we we knew enough about it that seemed to have functional agriculture but now there's these different things that are getting us to be able to see way more complexity and it's way more accessible to be looking at all the microbes. And so then you're like, oh, actually, maybe we do have to look at that. And it's back to Jeff's watch, watch analogy. Like, you got to put it all together. Mm. And that's probably the next. Like, I think we're probably just in the, 
you know, it's, we're just at the, at the precipice of this. Like, I think I, I, I'm not going to guarantee, but I would be very surprised if in the next 20 years, the way that we look at soil is so drastically different. And we can't believe that we were doing what we were doing or what was considered good practice is good practice because it's, it's just, like I look at how it's happened since I'm I will date myself here but when I was <laughs> when I was in high school if you had acne it was a really normal thing for a doctor to pre- to prescribe tetracycline a back, like an antibiotic that you were just on for years and nobody had any concern about that that didn't seem crazy at all and now today with the antibiotic resistance there is not a doctor in the world or maybe there's some but there no on medical practice would never for acne prescribe an antibiotic. And so I think because, and we realize that it impacts your gut health and your whole, like even your mental health and all these connections that are happening in human health, there's an equal and, and con- equal and consistent um, analogy to be made with the soil health. Cause that's, you're dealing with a mic- microbial world, a, a microbiome, just like we have in our gut. And now we realize like, oh, we need all these different types of bacteria to make us healthy and to process our food and do all these things. And if you're missing one of them, holy, that's a, that has a big impact on your health. And I think that the soil is probably way more complex even than our guts are. So like, what are the, what's the consequences of that going to be? Yeah, totally. Especially like with that whole watch thing too, we do have to think like, this is probably the most complicated complex watch that's ever been designed that you know all the badass watchmakers in the world got together to figure it out and most of them probably couldn't put it back together by themselves so yeah it's gonna yeah it's gonna take a lot of learning and a lot of just being open-minded to the directions this could all go so i'm wondering what your thoughts are how how do we move away from what dr badigelli was saying us being slaves to the soil uh, to transitioning to the healthy, happy soil he was talking about. Well, going back to the McDon- McDonald's analogy, if you're... It always you're, comes back to McDonald's. It now. always comes back to McDonald's. I'm like, I'm sure I'm getting sued for something, for libel <laughs> against McDonald's. Um, fast food in general. Um, but if you are a kid that's only ever... The only way you ever learned how to have food in your belly was by going through the McDonald's drive-thru. Then you're a slave to, if McDonald's is closed, you don't get to eat. And so that's right now how the plant in a, in a conventional cropping system, that's how the plants are. If they're, if somebody doesn't put fertilizer on, the plants don't grow because they are totally used to getting their McDonald's and that's all that's there. And so they're not going to get yields. They're not going to be able, they're going to be like, I'm so hungry. And so, um, but for kids that have been taught like crazy things, like maybe how to grow their own food, but definitely how to go to the grocery store and, or the farmer's market and cook, like pick good food and cook it. Then, then they're not like McDonald's is closed, but then they're like, oh, I'll just go to the grocery store and I'll cook and I'll eat. And so that's where I think that as we can help support the plants in developing those 
by taking those steps that create the above ground biodiversity that creates below ground biodiversity and creates those functional communities and we reduce the disturbance and we don't keep blowing up 17th avenue or like or like bulldozing it every year that's that's how we are going to when we can understand how those microbes work together and interact um, and we support the processes that help them do that that's how we won't be slaves to the soil we'll be we'll allow the soil to actually have its own healthy happy ecosystem where it's the soil is interacting with the plants in a way that they're both winning Mm. yeah so it's just like letting uh, soil just fully express itself that the, the whole slaves to the soil thing as i understood it from him was yeah like this is creating more work if we're constantly have to put in amendments and inputs and stuff like that I, I think it still has a place here and there especially since at this point we need to kind of restore what once was so we, we have to do that more or less but yeah i, I kind of see what you're saying like if you just kind of let soil do its thing and it is happy healthy soil it in some ways it does save work on you. Maybe the yields won't be as big. I'll, I'll admit that point, but I, you know, saves you time. That's that, that's something considering how busy most producers are, and and saves you the input costs too. So, and I think there's there's a balance in in how to do that, and and I don't think you you definitely don't, you know, you don't close McDonald's without, you know, you can still be going to McDonald's and also be learning how to cook simultaneously. And I think that that's that's probably how. If people really want to start taking steps, that's what they're going to have to do if, if you know, it's just looking at ways how we can support the biology as best as possible. So we reduce the need for the same number of, of, of inputs, potentially. Rural Routes to Climate Solutions is a central Alberta-based project empowering agricultural producers with climate solutions. We're based in Stettler, and Rural Routes runs workshops, farm field days, produces this podcast series, and hosts webinars. For more information, go to our website, which is www.rr2, that is a two as in a numeric two, cs.ca. I'd like to say thank you to the Alberta Real Estate Foundation for providing financial support for the podcast and thank you to the Advisory Committee of Rural Roots for helping me out and I guess stopping me from doing anything too crazy. Members of the Advisory Committee are Brenda Barrett, Dana Penrice, Mark Fox and Kim Cornish sitting across the room from me right now. Today's episode was recorded at Media Lab YYC in Calgary and was edited by Kieran Mountain of Mountain Media and Red Deer. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.